In the fall of 2007, I was sitting beside an attorney in the DuPage County District Court. Now, I didn't have to be there. The attorney had told me I didn't have to be there, but I wanted to be there. You see, we were waiting for our case to be called. For almost two years prior to that, there was a group of us here at Pleasant Hill Community Church who had been working to pull together records and documents and give affidavits. Why? Because we had just purchased our missionary residence, and the state of Illinois, after we had applied to them, the state of Illinois had said, no, you are not tax-exempt. And so we had to go through hearing after hearing after hearing and and all to try to figure out how we could get tax-exempt. It had taken two years. Well, the first hearing decided against us. So now we're at the district court. We had uh, applied for uh, appeal. The court, uh, the the, the bailiff called our case up and uh, the district attorney went forward, or the attorney for the state went forward, our attorney went forward, and, and I, I watched as they met together there in front of the judge. I listened as the attorney for the state began to make her case, and I was actually surprised that the judge interrupted her and began to just go down every element of their case and actually refute every element of their case. The judge assured her that she had read all the papers and all the briefs and had looked carefully at all the statutes, and once she had kind of refuted their case, the gavel came down, and the judge decided for the plaintiffs, Pleasant Hill Community Church, you would be proud of me. I did not make a disturbance in the courtroom that day. I did not yell out a whoop. I just simply sat there and was quietly praising God. But we had 60 days. 60 days to wait to see if the state would appeal. And praise God, they did not. Our missionary residence from that time to this day was considered tax exempt. We received two years of property tax payments that we had made back. And I think we need to keep times like that in mind as we move forward in our lives and in our church. In Romans 15.4, Paul reminds us that the ancient stories in our Bible are there to help each one of us have hope and to teach us how to live as we wait on God's promises to be fulfilled. I have been thinking about that courtroom experience as I have come to this section in the book of Hosea. And and something that we have to always keep in mind as we are early in our series in the Minor Prophets, we have to always remember the Bible was not written in in a vacuum. The Bible was written by real people in real times who had real struggles and real questions and sometimes really wondered, God, what are you doing? Hosea struggled with the way people chose to reject his message. Hosea struggled with wanting to kind of stick it to them every now and then. Uh, Hosea was this real guy who was in an untenable situation, as we have already seen, and yet he stuck to it. He didn't stop. 
That's what we call commitment. It's one thing to be committed to something when you know or hope or believe there's there's a tangible reward at the end of the journey. But it's another level of commitment to know that there probably won't be a tangible reward at the end of the journey and you stick to it anyway. That's the level of commitment we see in Hosea. Already we've seen Hosea as a wounded lover. He's presented God as a wounded lover. He's presented God as a prosecuting attorney. And today, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, we're going to see Hosea representing God as a presiding judge, handing down a sentence to defendants who have just been tried and convicted. The nation is guilty. The punishment for their guilt was outlined in the covenant written all the way back in the book of Leviticus in chapter 26. And the bottom line of the, of the, the sentence for the nation was, when you fail to obey God, when you chase after other gods, then you will eventually be taken away from the land. Oftentimes, when a judge hands down a sentence, he or she uses that opportunity to give some instructions to, to the defendant, to, to talk to them about their life choices, to challenge them to make different choices going forward, to challenge them to let this punishment be a catalyst for changing their life. Those are the pronouncements that tend to make the news. Yet this judge, the divine judge, through his messenger Hosea, is handing down a sentence and yet we will find at the very end, there's one opportunity given again, one more opportunity for the nation to repent. I hope you have your Bibles open to Hosea chapter 8, and uh, we are going to begin in verses 1 through 4. And let me just tell you, I'm going to summarize the, the judgment and then we'll look through it. But the first judgment is simply this, it's not about religion. Didn't we say that just last week? It's not about religion. Look at what, what is said here in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Put the trumpet to your lips. An eagle is over the house of the Lord, because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel cries out to me, Our God, we acknowledge you. But Israel has rejected what is good, an enemy will pursue him. They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Israel responded to God when he said, you're, you're going to get swept over by, by an enemy. Israel says, God, we acknowledge you. You know, it's almost like a foxhole conversion. Oh, God, if you get me out of this, then I'll, I'll go serve you. God, no, don't send an enemy on us. We, we acknowledge you. But God's response is, no, you don't acknowledge me. Because you have just been religious. And it's not about religion. God's response is, you've rejected what I call good. You go about your business as if I don't exist. You, you have put so many things ahead of God, you almost can't find him anymore. Basically, you've tried to make God simply one of many gods that you worship. 
We talked about that in the very beginning of this series, about the pluralism that was rampant in Israel then, that there was Baal, Ashereth, and oh yeah, Yahweh, and we'll just kind of put them all together. And God says, you're depending on what you can depend to fortify instead of me. Look down all the way to verse 11. In chapter 8, though Ephraim built many altars for sin offerings, these have become altars for sinning. I wrote for them many things of my law, but they regarded them as something foreign. Though they offer sacrifices as gifts to me, and though they eat the meat, the Lord is not pleased with them. Now he will remember their wickedness and punish their sins. They will return to Egypt. Israel has forgotten their maker and built palaces. Judah has fortified many towns, but I will send fire on their cities and consume that, that will consume their fortresses. And not only had they not acknowledged God, they had gone ahead and tried to figure things out on their own. You see, you can't say you acknowledge God and then live like he does not exist in your life. What a great reminder to you and me. And, and, and one of the things you're going to find, the themes tend to be repeated. Someone once told me that repetition is the key to learning. The more we repeat something, the more we learn it. So the themes are repeated. And this is a theme that we've seen before. This is this reminder that, that while you and I may not have the threat of the Assyrian army breathing down our collective necks, God still expects you and me to live consistently. What part does God play in your daily decisions? What is your reputation out there in the community? Does your reputation and the way that you live your life out there in the community, does it reflect a relationship with God? How do you conduct your business? If I asked your neighbors to describe you, what would they tell me? Would it be consistent with somebody who does have a relationship with God? Would it be consistent with someone who claims to follow Jesus Christ? If I had a conference, a personal conference with your school teachers, would their description of you reflect that you follow Jesus? You see, God is serious about what we say we believe, and God wants that to match how we live because it's about our life with God. It's not about religion. In chapter 8, and then carrying on also into chapter 10, God makes another point for the nation. And it's simply this. Carefully consider your source of dependency. Carefully consider your source of dependency. Look at chapter 8, verse 7. They sow the wind, they reap the whirlwind. 
The stalk has no head, it will produce no flower. Were it to yield grain, foreigners would swallow it up. The, they, they, they think they can live any way they want. They sow the wind, they weep the whirlwind. Verse 14, we already read that. Let's look at it again. Israel has forgotten their maker. So they've forgotten their source of dependency. And so in other words, they've built palaces. We'll have beautiful palaces. Our dependency is there. Then we'll fortify our towns. We will strengthen our towns. But I will send fire on their cities I will, that will consume their fortresses. The things upon which they are depending are frail. In chapter 10, beginning in verse 13, we see this. You have planted wickedness and you have reaped evil. You have eaten the fruit of deception because you have depended on your own strength and on your many warriors. That roar, the, the roar of battle will rise up against your people so that all your fortresses will be devastated. As Shalman devastated Beth Arbel on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed on the ground with their children, so will it happen to you, Bethel, because your wickedness is great. When that day dawns, the king of Israel will be completely destroyed. Carefully consider your source of dependency. That image Sow the wind, reap the whirlwind. Sometimes you get more than you bargain for when you invest in that which is not pleasing to God. You see, Israel had made a choice. They had chosen to invest in, to depend on the nation of Assyria. That is a sowing of the wind. And not only was it an unwise political move, it was a move that God said, don't do this. Do not make treaties with pagan nations. That was emphasized in Exodus 34, 12, and again in Deuteronomy 7, 2. And they said, you know what? We don't trust God. We don't trust God as our source of dependency. Assyria shows us much more tangible strength. We'll throw our lot in with them. And God says, you sow into that. You will reap a whirlwind of trouble. And history proves that they did. Israel was depending on their ability to fortify. And notice Judah as well is brought into this. On their ability to protect themselves. And God says, okay, I'll let you do that. As a result of your self-dependency, I'm going to let you try to defend yourselves. I'm going to let you depend on the cities you fortified. But you need to understand, the Assyrian army was in a, a, a powerful, warmongering people. And, and I won't go into detail, but you did not want to get captured as an enemy combatant by the Assyrian army. Their means of torture were legendary. What are you depending on today? Upon whom are you depending today? I look out here and I see that God has gifted each one of us with some incredible talents and abilities. God has nothing against hard work, God has nothing against being good stewards, about being disciplined. But when you or I begin, or when anyone begins to look to themselves as their own source of dependency, God will let you do that. He will let you go. He won't interfere. If you want to be dependent upon yourself, God says, do your best. 
But the point is there's going to come a time. There's going to come a time in each of our lives when we must face up to the fact that we can't handle it. You see, the fact is, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how smart you think you are, no matter how talented you think you are, there's not a one of us here who hasn't made mistakes, big mistakes. The people that we've depended on at times have let us down. Some will betray us. Some will leave us. Hey, the people we love the most sometimes because that's what life is. They'll pass away. They'll, they'll die. And then where are we left? The investments we make do not always turn out to be successful. With the volatility of the stock market right now, I tell you, if you get a report from your 401k or from your IRA, don't look at it. Just throw it away. You know, you don't need that kind of negativity in your life right now. The deal that you worked so hard to broker and to put together could be shattered in a moment. If you're depending on your hard work and on your abilities and on your talent, oh, you'll see success. But it will not last. It doesn't always last. Records always get broken. Sales figures always get broken. When you see success, know that when you face the ultimate judge of the universe, our God, if you've depended on yourself, you'll be found lacking. See, the fact is, in every endeavor of life, no matter what it is, no matter how hard you work, in every endeavor of life, somebody comes in second. Somebody loses. Someone doesn't break the record. If your own success is what you're depending on, at some time or another, you'll come up empty. I hope you saw it. The first Saturday of May, for me, is always a reminisce time because my dad always made sure that on the first Saturday of May, he was in front of the TV watching the Kentucky Derby. I'm not that faithful. But this last Kentucky Derby was amazing. There were two horses that were supposed to be favored. They were going to win it. They were the ones. And, and at the end of the race, and especially if you see the YouTube video or go back to NBC and see the video from the top, you see this horse in the back, uh, Rich Strike, coming up. And, and he's coming in on the rail, and he's weaving behind horses, and they're coming through the backstretch, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this horse that was not even supposed to have been in the Kentucky Derby and found out the, the, they found out it would be in about three days earlier, this horse that was an 80 to 1. In other words, in 80 races, he might win one. This horse weaves his way up and comes and wins the Kentucky Derby. It was amazing. Can you imagine the other two jockeys thinking they had it, really just vying against one another? Whoop, here comes the, the horse, the 80 to 1. That happens to you and me. When I start depending on myself, I start focusing on what's right there in front of me, and all of a sudden something comes up and surprises me 
and blows me out of the water. But when I depend on God, he already knows the beginning from the end. The revelation from John describes him as the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. God knows what this afternoon holds. He knows what tomorrow holds. Carefully choose your source of dependency. The judge makes another pronouncement. And it kind of fits what we've been talking about here. And it's simply this. Sometimes you get exactly what you think you want. Sometimes you get exactly what you think you want. And, and we're going to see that outlined through, for us throughout chapter 9 of Hosea. The sad reality of the history of the nation of Israel was that they had actually sought after other gods and other means of worship since the very beginning. You know, I, I went back and I read the book of Joshua, and in Joshua chapter 24, Joshua's an old man now. Joshua had taken over from Moses. He had led the people across the Jordan River. He marched around Jericho. The walls fell. He was led the people. And, and in chapter 24 now, he's an old man, and he's giving his farewell speech and I find it amazing that in chapter 24 and verse 14, he says, Now throw away the gods from across the river. Some of the people were holding on to other gods, thinking, you know, if this Yahweh thing doesn't work out, I need to have a backup plan. A generation after Joshua, a generation after the Jordan River, and after all of that, and after all the victories, they had forgotten about God. And they were doing what was right in their own eyes. That's what the book of Judges is all about. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. No sin was too great, and no sin was too heinous. In this chapter, we'll have mentioned Gibeah in verse 9, and later on Gilgal, places of shocking sin, places of false worship. So here's what God says, because sometimes you get exactly what you think you want. Look at verses 1 through 7 of chapter 9. Do not rejoice, Israel. Do not be jubilant like other nations, for you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. Threshing floors and wine presses will not feed the people. The new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land. Ephraim will return to Egypt and eat unclean food in Assyria. They will not pour out wine offerings to the Lord, nor will their sacrifices please him. Such sacrifices will be to them like the bread of mourners. All who eat them will be unclean. This food will be for themselves. It will not come into the temple of the Lord. What will you do on the day of your appointed festivals, on the feast days of the Lord? Even if they escape from destruction, Egypt will gather them, Memphis will bury them. Their treasures of silver will be taken over by briars and thorns, and, will be, and thorns will overrun their tents. The days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this because your sins are so many and your hostility is so great. The prophet is considered a fool, the inspired person, a maniac. Let me start there. They were saying, Hosea, you're, you're just an idiot. You're a maniac. You're a fool. God says, you know what? If you want to be part of another nation, 
if you want to worship other gods, if you want to be just like them, then go ahead. I'll let you have that. I'll let you have what you want. In fact, you can go back to their land. You can be immersed with their people. You see, both Egypt and Assyria are symbols of bondage. Egypt was the place of bondage. It was the place where the, the, the people of Israel had been enslaved for 400 years and, and had been forced labor. And they're saying, well, we want to kind of go back there. Assyria became a, a, a nation that, that required tribute and required things of them. And the people, well, you know, that's okay. I mean, you know, at least we're somewhat safe. And God says, but what you desire is not going to happen if you do this. Your land is not going to be fertile. Your offspring is not going to survive. And even though you've worshipped, chosen to worship a God of fertility, he's a false God who can't deliver. You see, it's very possible for you and me to be just like this. It's possible that we can pursue a course of self-indulgence. In fact, we live in a culture of consumerism. We live in a culture that promotes self-indulgence. And when we pursue self-indulgence, and I'm not saying it's wrong to have a nice thing or two, but when that becomes my pursuit, my goal, my vision for my life is to have more, there's a sense in which God, well, I put it this way. He kind of reverses his grace. And what do I mean by that? See, sometimes grace says no. Sometimes the most gracious thing God can say to you and me is no. But sometimes the worst thing God can do for you and me is to give us what we think we want. When we get what we think we want, we sometimes fail to think about the true cost. It's as simple as a child saying to their parents, I want a puppy. I want a puppy. I'll take care of it. I'll feed it. I'll walk it. I want a puppy. I'll, I, I, I. And so what do they get? They get a puppy. And ultimately, it's mom that takes care of it and feeds it and walks it or, or dad that, ta- you know, and, and the kid plays with the puppy, but somebody else takes the responsibility. You know, I got what I thought I wanted, but I didn't really want it that much. I want someone else to do the work. Or it can be, I want that promotion. I need that promotion. I need that new position. I need to move up in the company. And, 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 and you know what? That promotion could be great. There could be a lot of a bonus that comes with that. There could be a bump in salary that comes with that. But also there could be more travel, more stress, more responsibility, more hours spent at work. And you wonder, hmm, I wonder if in the long run the promotion was worth it. God may give you that relationship that you thought you wanted and now somehow you have to deal with all the negatives that came with it that you weren't thinking about because you were only thinking about what you wanted at the time. Sometimes the greatest punishment God can give us is to let us have what we think we want and then we find that we're in greater bondage. God said to Israel in chapter 9, you want this? You want to go this way? You want to have all of this? I'm going to give it to you. But coming with that is going to be the bondage and the slavery and the division and the pain and the heartache and the sorrow and, and being under the, under the thumb of the Assyrian army. 
I've told you time and again that when Hosea prophesied, Israel was, they were doing good economically. They did look at their IRAs and their 401ks when they came in the mail because everything was just humming along. And there's a false sense of security that comes with that. And that's, that's the point God makes throughout chapter, most of chapter 10. And it's simply this. Wealth cannot buy spiritual maturity. This section actually begins with the, the sentence from the judge and, and then the reasons. Uh, let me pick it up in verse 10, in verse 1. Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth forth fruit for himself. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. Their heart is deceitful. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will demolish their altars and destroy their sacred stones. Then they will say, we have no king because we did not revere the Lord. But even if we had a king, what could he do for us? They make many promises, take false oaths, and make agreements. Therefore, lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds in a plowed field. Israel was eventually scattered. They were carried away. They were not able to buy their security, even though their land was fruitful. In fact, like I said, in the time of Hosea prophesying, they were very wealthy. That's why they were attractive to the nation of Syria. Here's a wealthy kingdom that we can take over. It was a tenuous wealth because it was built on the wrong things. They had used their wealth to invest in false gods and to build more altars. Uh, Namely, the main worship in Israel were two golden calves, one at the north and one at the southern part. Their wealth had, bought, had not bought security. In fact, what their wealth had done is brought about fear. Now they had fear of lawsuits. Notice that. Lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds in a plowed field. I mean, everybody was suing everybody because they wanted their wealth. God says the wealth they had would be accursed. It would be carried away. Look at verse 6. Uh, I'll pick it up in verse 5. The people who live in Samaria fear for the calf idol beth Avon. Its people will mourn over it, so will its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over its splendor, because it is taken from them into exile. It will be carried to Assyria as tribute for the great king. Ephraim will be disgraced. Israel will be ashamed of its foreign alliances. The Samaria's king will be destroyed, swept away like a twig on the surface of the waters. The high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel." Thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. God says, all the wealth you've accrued is going to be taken away. Because wealth does not buy spiritual security. You had depended on your wealth to to make you secure in every other way, including spiritually. And God says, it's all going to be taken away. And eventually you're going to become a laughing stock. And nobody's going to take you seriously. Now at this point, the judge does an interesting thing. Because the judge is consistent with who he is. 
God is always, always, always reaching out his hand and offering opportunity for change. And he does that here in one verse. In all of these three chapters, there's one verse where God says there is an opportunity for change. You see, the language here has been largely agriculture. You've noticed that? Sow the wind, talking about threshing floors. There's another place where God talks about Israel was like when he first found them, they were refreshing grapes. He talks about being fruitful, being fertile. God continues with that theme when he says this in verse 12 of chapter 10. Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. Here's the point. It's very simple. It's really basic. Pleasing God is always beneficial. Pleasing God is always beneficial. How basic, how simple. God says, sow righteousness. Earlier he said, you sowed the wind. Now he says, sow righteousness. And what will happen? Righteousness will reap the fruit of unfailing love. How do you sow righteousness? How do we do that? How do we obey this? For Israel, it came back to just following the laws of the covenant. And let me really make it basic. Just do the Ten Commandments. That's it. Just follow the Ten Commandments. For for you and me, we have that reminder that we've come back to several times. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, all, all of the commandments hang on those two principles. Love God, obey God, love others. When you love someone, you get to know them. You get to know everything about them. Charlene and I have the great privilege of doing premarital counseling with so many young couples. And it is amazing, those couples who've known each other for maybe one, two, sometimes three or four years, you know, they they barely, and now they're ready to, to put that relationship into a marriage. They know each other. They know, they know colors, favorite colors, favorite foods. They, they, have, they have studied each other. That's what you do when you love somebody. You study them. You become a student of them. You want to know everything about them. Do you love God that much? That you just want to know everything you can about him and are are just drawn by the fact that the more you know about him, the more you want to know? Love God. Love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. You sow seeds of righteousness when when what you claim to believe about God matches the way you live your life. You sow seeds of righteousness when you lean on God and learn to depend on Him and and you learn what it means to be content with what He's given you and where He's placed you. You sow seeds of righteousness when you understand that you do err, that you do make mistakes, that you do sin, and that you come to God and you confess that sin and agree, and in other words, you agree with God that it is sin, and you receive His forgiveness and you sow seeds of righteousness. 
You sow seeds of righteousness when you show grace and compassion and mercy to those around you. You sow seeds of righteousness when you learn to forgive grievances, when you come alongside and encourage, when you help and share what you have. But you can't do that as kind of a bargain with God. You can't do that as some kind of just religious exercise. Because you begin sowing seeds of righteousness when you allow God to change your heart. How does that happen? You seek the God who says, when you seek me, you will find me. Remember how this story began? God came to Hosea. And he said, I want you to go marry a prostitute. And he did. And he brought her home. They had a child together. And then, for whatever reason, she went back to her old life. And she had two other children. And then, God said to Hosea, go back to her. And and he did. Now, he could have gone back with the legal authority and said to whomever was having her at the time, this is my wife and she's coming with me. But you know what he did? He went back and he bought her back. He paid for her to come back and he brought her back home. He was her husband and she was his wife. He showed a living illustration of God who has every legal right to demand us back, but what does he do? He pays the price for our sin in Jesus Christ. God created us, and we deserted him. We've sinned, but he has not treated us as our sins deserve. He made himself the sacrifice for our sins through Jesus. The sentence was actually passed down at the dawn of time. When Adam and Eve sinned, the Apostle Paul summarizes it in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, for all have sinned. We are all sinners. How do we know that? Because at one time or another, every one of us is going to come to the end of our life. And every one of us in this room has at one time or another faced death of some kind. Whether it be from a loved one or a beloved pet, we have faced death because death is the fruit of sin. But it's not the end of the story. In another familiar verse, just a chapter away, Paul says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6, 23. Jesus, God the Son, took our sin, paid our penalty, died in our place. We are the beneficiaries of His grace. And I think we need to think about that because we've looked at the judge's sentence today. And we've seen that it's harsh and it's final and, it's, and, and, and it is deserving in one sense. The people deserved what they got. And as we've looked at the judge's sentence, I want you to think about God and his grace. God and his sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for your sins today. 
And maybe you prayed a prayer 35, 40 years ago, or maybe you prayed a prayer last week, and I'm so thankful that you maybe did that, but I want you to make sure you understand that was not the end. That was not the finish line. That is the beginning point of your life with Christ. And we each need to ask God to open our eyes and, and, and open our hearts so that we can see where we are struggling. Notice what he says here. Break up your unplowed ground. Ask God to show you where there's unplowed ground in your heart that's, that's hardened, that needs to be broken up so that you can grow even more. Ask God to open your eyes so that you can see His righteousness showered on you. You're not going to be perfect. You're never going to be perfect. But you can grow. God is a God who's already shown you and me His unfailing love and He invites us into relationship with Him. And using those words from the wedding ceremony, forsaking all others. But it's our choice. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word this morning. I thank You for this book of Hosea. I thank You for the way that it uh, in my own study, has really challenged me and pulled me up short. And I thank you that woven in these words that are hard to read and hard to understand and hard to grasp, we find woven into them your true heart of a loving Father who longs nothing more than for His children to be in healthy relationship with Him. Lord, on this day, may we determine that once again on a daily basis we will choose to follow you and choose to be in healthy relationship with you. And it's a day-to-day -day reality. We give all this to you in Jesus' name.